right, uh, continuing today in uh, Galatians chapter 4. And let me just read a small portion of this uh, section and we'll talk about it. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves, who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Paul is doing a a very odd thing here. He's reversing the whole understanding of the two brothers, uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And he's saying, well now actually the Jews are in the place of Ishmael. And Israel, or, or rather Christians, are actually the heirs of the promise. They're the fulfillment of the promise to Isaac. We talked about this this morning, that throughout Scripture, the theme of two sons, it will be played out over and over. You know, Cain kills Abel. And then Jesus is going to accuse the Jews of being guilty of the blood of Abel. Why are they guilty of the blood of Abel? precisely because they fail to see that they're playing the role of Cain because they identify themselves. They say, oh, we're the good brother. We're the blessed brother. By identifying and imagining that they're the good brother, they fail to see that they're actually in the place of Cain. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Um. In the, uh, you know, the story of Jacob and Esau, it's the same story. Jacob is kind of the, you know, he's the bad brother. He steals Esau's blessing. And yet as the story proceeds, you know, the two brothers come back together. And when Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son and the two brothers, I think he's echoing a lot of these themes from the Old Testament but especially the story of Jacob and Esau. When the, uh, you know, Jacob uh, comes and he's afraid Esau is going to kill him because he's stolen the blessing. And yet Esau has repented. Esau receives him very much like the father in the story of the prodigal son receives the prodigal back. He welcomed him. He hugged him. He blessed him. It sounds like Jesus is echoing the story of Jacob and Esau. And here Paul compares Isaac and Ishmael. But the two brothers are functioning as representative. And that's the st- I think that's what we're to see in the story. All these two brother stories, they're really representative of all people. As in all of these stories the two, of the two sons... If we miss it, if we identify and say, well, that, that dirty Cain, you know, or that, that, uh, that Jacob or that Esau. In other words, it's sort of like saying, well, those Pharisees, they killed Jesus. Let's get them. Wait a minute. 
That's precisely what Jesus is preaching against. The way that we become Pharisees uh, is that we imagine like the story of the sons, the prodigal sons. You know, the older son says, uh, he thinks he's the good son. The Pharisees think they're the good son. For so many years, the older son says, I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. Well, this is precisely what the Judaizers are doing in uh, Galatia. They're not getting the point of the law. They're misunderstanding what it means, you know, to be chosen even. And so the danger is they'll move from slaves. They've gone from slaves to the law. They become sons. And now the danger is they'll go back to being slaves as they imagine that sonship is earned. I deserve to be a son, you know. I I deserve all that I have. And the temptation is to miss what they have in Christ. The, The temptation is not to realize what the younger son realizes in the story of the prodigal son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the temptation is to depend upon, as Paul says, the elementary principles of this world. I think we can readily understand the problem of the Judaizers. But let's not miss the point here. Can we recognize ourselves as Judaizers? Can we recognize that we may be in danger of doing the same thing? And I mean this not just individually, but I mean even corporately in our theology. Can we recognize that the modern version... Of the, you know to understand Christ through the law. Why did Jesus come? I'm afraid that the major doctrines that we have them interpreted to us through Anselm, Calvin, are doing what the Judaizers did. They're saying that the law explains Christ. That's not the explanation of the atonement. The problem is not the problem of the law. The problem is our orientation to the law. And maybe if law here is, you know, we all kind of glaze over, oh, he's talking about the Jewish law. But just think here of law. Paul's talking about logic. He's talking about basic principles. He's talking about worldviews. He says we're no longer slaves or children. While we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things. This is universal. The things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. Who's under the law? Well, everybody is. We're all under this law, under this elemental principle. That we might receive the adoption as sons because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. And so one of the key things I think we are to draw from this is that we should no longer be deluded and deceived in regard to the law. The delusion is always the same. You know, think here Genesis 3, 4. You won't die. You'll be like God. Or think Jacob. Oh no, I've stolen the blessing of my brother. Or think the Judaizers or the Jews. You've earned the blessing through the law. You're the blessed son. You're the good son. 
And those other people, they're the accursed ones. You are Jacob, you are Isaac, you're the good son. And Paul reverses all this. And he says the son that was out is, you know, is now in, and the son that was in is now out. What he's saying is we're no longer under the principalities and powers of this world. The law, the form of logic, we're no longer slaves. We've been set free from these things, but we've got to get it. We've got to identify what he's talking about. We've passed from knowledge according to the law. Let me, let me say this. I hope I don't. We can stay, say this in many different ways. I'll do philosophy, your favorite subject. Uh, because I think that's all that Paul's talking about. Uh, there are these basic principles in an Aristotelian system or a Greek system. It's the problem of the one and the many. That is that we all change, but what is there the one unchanging thing about us? Uh, it's the identity through difference. How do we know who we are? Well, I'm not that person. I know who I am. I'm American or I'm, you know. We do identity on the basis of what we're not. Or if you just think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we know the good because of the evil, and we know the evil and against the good. It's the yin-yang. The two things are almost necessary to one another. And this is precisely what we're saved from. My daughter goes, There's a. we went up there yesterday, we went up to Take Root Cafe in uh, Kirksville, she was telling us that when she was there the other day, an old man came in. She was there studying. Man, maybe in his 80s, and he came up and he said, Ah, oh, you know, you're a student. And he began to talk to her. He has discovered how we can achieve world peace and save the world. Uh, if anybody, just nobody will, is willing to listen to him. And so my daughter said, Oh, oh please sit down. I'll listen, you know, how. How are we going to save the world? And actually, he's, he's quite an interesting old man because he's referring to a, a guy named Alfred Korzybski. I, I kind of knew a little bit. I think I knew of Korzybski. I studied linguistics. Korzybski says, well, our problem, you see, is language. And language is always this binary thing. It's always, you know, good, evil, light, dark. Uh, and so we're limited by the language we're, speak, we're speaking. We're limited. And so this old man, he said, I'm going to invent a new language. Of course, my daughter was getting a little nervous at this point. Uh, <laughs> thinking maybe, maybe it's time to leave, you know. <laughs> uh, but actually, the, the idea that, you know, is our problem language? Is our problem the law? Is the pro our problem the basic principles? Um, is our problem, you know, uh, in fact, the, really something different than that? And of course, I think the problem is not language. The problem is not law. But the problem is what we know through language. That is, in, to state it philosophically rather than religiously, uh, that what a philosopher does, he imagines that he can discover the truth in and through language per se. Right? That's what, that's what you're doing in philosophy. You're saying, okay, I'm going to study the truth and I'm going to arrive at the truth through my thinking. What's the Jewish problem? 
To imagine that you can arrive at life through the law per se. That is, the law is the answer. Now the mistake will be to say, you know what the old man in the restaurant was saying. Oh no, our problem is exactly the opposite. That language is inadequate and we need a new language. I think both of those are missing it. Our problem is what we know and what we don't know. And the alternative is to present an understanding, a knowledge of God. This is the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it. When man, you know, before the fall, he imagines uh, only one thing. He knows everything in relationship to God. And it is only in his unity of his knowledge of God that he knows of other men, of things, of himself. And then when he knows the knowledge of good and evil, notice that God no longer figures into that. So that language, law, philosophy, religion, you know, whatever you want to call it, that becomes a kind of end in itself and God is left out of the picture. So the law, language, it's not a departure. That's just the system we always have. The old man in the restaurant is partly right. We've got a problem. He's just misidentifying the problem. We live in a closed, exclusive economy. Paul says about these Judaizers, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out. You know, if you've ever been, you know, this is like high school. What do the cool kids know? They know if if you're a cool kid, you're exclusive. Nobody else can get in our club, you know. Well, that's what this is sort of Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx said, I would never join a club that would allow someone like myself to be a member. That's very, you know. So we, we, we tend to always want to go to be a part of that thing from which we are excluded. That's precisely the way the law works. That's the way that human desire works. What Paul says, Israel was ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. That is, Israel did not understand or recognize what its God was doing within history. The law was not the end. The law was, you know, this idea, we're in, they're out, or some sort of exclusive club. No, the law was just a marker, it's a tutor, it's operating according to the basic principles of the world. Now, how does this apply to us? I'm afraid that our traditional doctrine of atonement doesn't recognize what I'm just saying to you, but it aggravates the problem. Paul says about the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're ignorant of being made right through Christ. And they're seeking to establish their own. I think Paul is not just talking about the Jews. I think he's talking about all people. He's talking about Genesis 3 sort of problem. You know, even Adam and Eve, they have a zeal for the law, right? The law of the knowledge of good and evil. They want to establish their own law. They want to establish their own ethical understanding. And so there is this zeal, a kind of notion that there is life to be had in and through our own power, 
that the law was supposed to show us. It was supposed to point us to Christ. And the Jews then are attempting to establish their own righteousness. To be like God, you know, then Genesis 3, through knowing good and evil, through being the arbiter of their own ethic, no longer dependent upon God, no longer dependent like the younger son and saying, throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, I know that I do not deserve to be your son. Let me come and be a servant in your household. And so, um, in the classical understanding of who Christ is, I'm afraid we've converted the idea that uh, Christ himself is just part of the economy of the law. Why did Christ die? In Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction, it is only it is because of the law. Anselm describes the entire work of the atonement as Christ fulfilling the law. Wait a minute. That's not what it means that Christ in some way is working under the law. Christ is suspending the law. Anselm says there's only so much space in heaven from the fallen angels... And those who are saved fill that space. And what he's working from is a closed economy. You get it? Same thing. Being a Jew. Being one of the cool kids. Being a part of the club that won't let us in. It's a zero-sum game that we have in the doctrine of divine satisfaction. In the doctrine of penal substitution. It's based on the rational necessity of a limited whole. There's only so many people, you know, in John Calvin's doctrine, limited atonement. Only so many of you can get in. Not everybody can get in. As Anselm will call it, it's a regulated economy. And he pictures it like a, a monetary economy in which God, you know, and Jesus are in some sort of business arrangement. And he pays off God so that we can be set free. None of this has anything to do with New Testament Christianity. That is the predominant doctrine, unfortunately, of the atonement. Anselm says, The absolute perfect number thought to inhabit the heavenly city. And he's using the idea of an absolutely rational argument. That they're both going to arrive at the same thing. An absolute rationality, an absolute law, it's the same thing. It's the idea that there's life in the law. Uh, And I think the New Testament is precisely aimed at exposing this, uh, to undoing this notion. So Anselm's system would make Judaizers of us all. I'm saying this morning, don't read yourself out of the story of Galatians. Because we're in danger of being the Judaizers because of our understanding of who Christ is. We're in danger of falling back into the very thing Paul is warning us about. There's an aggravation of the problem built upon the logic of the need. This is the way Anselm uh, talks about it. We need the death of Christ, but the reason we need the death of Christ in Anselm's picture, it's the logic of those who killed him. God almost needs the executioners. He does not refuse or resist the violence. 
He is the ultimate perpetrator. You know, why did Christ die in the traditional way this is told? Oh, God did it. Is that the story in the Gospels? Did God kill Jesus? No. Evil men killed Jesus. He's murdered. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us four murder stories. And Christ is overcoming the principalities and powers of this world in and through his death. He's not dying because of the righteous demands in the mind of God. He's dying because men are unrighteous and Christ has come to defeat this unrighteousness, this death-dealing violence. Um, Paul says he describes his own message to open their eyes, the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The picture is that we overcome the exclusiveness of the law. We overcome the lie of the idea that there is life to be had in and through our own you know, powers, our own thinking, our own uh, exclusiveness. Paul says in Ephesians, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. It's the same language as in Galatians. We were immature, we were children, we were under the basic principles, we were tossed about by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The name of Anselm's book, by the way, he says, why did, you know, why a God-man? And he gives us a full explanation that does not appeal to the Bible. He gives us a rational explanation for the death of Christ. I'm saying all this because the understanding that we often get in, our in the interpretation of the New Testament is not the New Testament at all, but it's the language of the Judaizers. Did Christ die for the law? Did Christ die, you know, on behalf of Ishmael? Or did he die because of the promise given to Abraham before the law? That's the whole point of Galatians. That's the whole point of the New Testament. The law is not the explanation, the logic that we might come up with, the zero-sum game of Anselm. That's precisely not why Christ died. Paul says it's precisely for freedom from those basic principles, for freedom from that slavery to that sort of logic, freedom from the forms of thought of this world. That Christ then takes us out of this closed system, this enslavement, this life lived in the mind and attitude of children. And now we become fully mature. We become sons. And we no longer depend upon these basic principles. That's what he's saying to these people that are being influenced by the Judaizers saying, go back. Let's not be the Judaizers of today and go back to the law, but recognize 
that Christ has given us the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, which in fact has nothing to do with the law. The law was simply in a middle period. Let's sing our hymn.